Okay, I think that's it. We'll now hear today's scripture reading, uh, and then after that, I will be back for today's teaching. Today, God speaks to us from Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, 11 to 21, and 38 to 41. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were, there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Cretans and Arabs, we hear from declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them, saying they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what, no, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. The word of the Lord. God. So if you were to uh, list off the uh, various passages of the Bible that can potentially be uh, the most contentious, uh, this would be one of those on the list. In recent church history, um, if we were considered the, the most discussed and debated passages, Acts 2 would most likely be on there. More ink has been spilled uh, concerning Acts 2 than maybe, uh, maybe any other chapter in the book of Acts that we'll be looking at. Uh, the entire de denominations have been founded and established as a result of differences of opinion on what's happening in Acts 2. And what that tells me, at minimum, is that Acts 2 is of great significance and it's worthy of us taking time to wrestle deeply with what we're seeing here. Now, last week, if you were with us, you know we started a new series called Extraordinary Through the Ordinary. The series is focusing on the ways in which God does extraordinary things through ordinary people in ordinary places, places which I hope gives us a vision for how he desires to continue to do the same. And we're doing all of this by looking at what's happening in the book of Acts. And today, we're going to look specifically now at 
Acts 2. Because what we see is an extraordinary event occur, events that we, uh, even right now, are directly connected to because in Acts 2, what we see is extraordinary power coming to ordinary people, which then leads to the birth of the New Testament church, the church that we are currently part of even now. Since the events that we just heard read in Acts 2, the entire world has never been the same. And so today I'm going to do my best to shoot for clarity in teaching on this passage so that we can all be confident about what it is that we absolutely should take away from Acts 2. I'll also say that I'm going to attempt to give a very cursory overview on my take on some of the more controversial uh, aspects of this passage. Uh, but over the course of the series, uh, we're actually going to be running into some of the more controversial aspects of Acts 2. And so I, I, as a result, I hope we can eventually flesh those out a bit more than I can today. But here is the main takeaway. And I'm going to tell you right up front, right now, what's happening in Acts 2 and what I want us to walk away with. That there is an encounter and an experience with God through being filled with the Holy Spirit... That, ordinary pe- that causes ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And Acts 2 tells us that that extraordinary power is available to those who are in Christ. And so what I want to look at today is that power. I want us to come with expectation that we can experience and encounter that power. And so to understand it, let's look at three things. What that power is, what that power is not, and what that power produces. Okay? So first, what that power is. Uh, we need, in order to understand what's happening here, we got to get our heads around something that's led up to Acts 2. Uh, we need to recall last week, uh, we talked about how Jesus, both in John 14 and also in John 16, he said that it was better for him to leave, because if he leaves, then he would send his Holy Spirit. And then in Acts 1, which was our passage last week, he tells the disciples in Acts 1.8, Uh, As he ascends, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And then as a result, the disciples, they go back to Jerusalem and they wait for that promise to be fulfilled. Then the story picks up here in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. Now for context, to give you a little understanding on what the day of Pentecost is, uh, the day of Pentecost was a Jewish festival Uh, That also is called the Feast of Harvest or the Feast of Weeks. The Greek name for that festival is Pentecost because it occurred uh, 50 days after uh, the uh, Passover. And as part of the celebration, Jews would come from all over the world. Many of them, at this point, actually did not speak Hebrew as their first language. That's an important detail. So what that means is that while this festival was a Jewish celebration. It was also, in many ways, a multicultural experience as well. And it's on this day, the day of Pentecost, the day of celebrating the harvest when the Spirit of God descends. And a harvest of sorts would actually occur as 3,000 people would come to faith on this day. Now, why is this so special? Why is this chapter and the events of this chapter so important? Well, let me reread for you what actually occurred when the Spirit of God descended. And let's try to understand what's happening there. All right, so in verse 1 and then into verse 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all uh, together in one place. 
Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there are three extraordinary things that take place here when the Spirit descends. They're pretty obvious. It says here that there was a violent wind, that there was fire, and that there was speaking in tongues. And each of those occurrences are actually packed full of meaning and purpose. These events that are taking place here are part of what we call a redemptive historical event, meaning that it's an action of God that furthers his plan of redemption for his people, all of which is deeply rooted in how God has revealed himself in redemptive history. Right? So the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, those are all redemptive historical events. And now the spirit of Jesus coming is this one-time event that occurs that is deeply rooted in redemptive history, but has uh, reverberations that last in eternity. And I want to show you what I mean by that. Let's look at each of those. Let's look at the wind. Let's look at the fire in particular. All throughout Scripture, whenever the presence of God appears and comes, this is the way that it inevitably manifests. It comes in this experience of wind and fire. Uh, In Ezekiel 37, in the valley of the dry bones, uh, when the wind or the breath of God comes, it brings life to the dead. Earlier in Ezekiel 1, when the glory of God comes, it comes in a windstorm and with fire everywhere. In Genesis 15, God shows up to Abraham, and when, uh, when God establishes his covenant with Abraham, he comes as a fiery torch. When God calls Moses, he comes with fire in a burning bush. When he leads Israel out of Egypt through the wilderness, he comes as a cloud and a pillar of fire. Now, when this wind came, when this fire came, it was always almost universally terrifying and overwhelming for the people that were experiencing it. In 1 Kings 18, as an example, if you know the story, the prophet Elijah comes against the prophets of Baal, and God sends fire down. And it was so awe-inspiring that it says that they all fell down to the ground out of fear. In Exodus 20, when the presence of God uh, comes to the people, the people are so terrified that they beg Moses to get God to stop and to just have Moses tell them what God says. They couldn't handle experiencing the presence of God any longer. In Exodus 3, when God comes to Moses in a burning bush, it says that Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look upon God. That the presence of God coming with this wind and with this fire was an overwhelming experience of power. And it was an experience that would come and go. God's presence did not stay in that way. It would come and then it would leave. So what does all that now have to do with what's happening in Acts 2? Well, here in our passage, the presence of God, which is the Spirit of God, is coming with all the might and all the power that rightly terrified and overwhelmed people in the past, except now that power is filling the Christian. 
The very presence and power of God is now in the Christian. Every Christian is now a burning bush, not consumed by the fire, but now empowered by that fire. Now the other, of course, magnificent piece to what's going on here in this passage is in verse 4. Let me reread for you verse 4. It says, All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now this, of course, is where some of the real controversy comes in. What exactly is happening there in verse 4? Uh, and before I lay out for you what I don't think is true about verse 4, I want to be abundantly clear about what I know for a fact is happening here in verse 4. Remember what I said, that this coming of the Spirit, the sending of the Spirit, is this redemptive historical event, event that is an action of God that furthers his plan of redemption for his people, all of which is deeply rooted in how God has already revealed himself throughout redemptive history. So how then does tongues contribute to God's plan of redemption? And where exactly is it rooted in redemptive history? Well, here's how it's connected. You know, we know that humanity is deeply divided, and often we are divided by language, by tribe, by nation. Right? These divisions currently run deep and have always run deep. Right? This is the, the purpose and the point of the story of Babel in Genesis 11 to show how humanity, in a desire to be their own gods, were cursed with this division amongst themselves, all of which has resulted in constant conflict and alienation from one another, divided along these lines. But even though that has been the case, and it was the case all throughout the Old Testament as well as it's the case for today, God, especially in the Old Testament, though he revealed his purposes for the people of Israel, his intention was always to undo the divisions that existed in order to bless the nations. In fact, the Tower of Babel, which is in Genesis 11, which shows why we have been divided, the very next chapter, in chapter 12, God calls Abraham... And as part of the covenant promises that God makes with Abraham that we see more fully in Genesis 22, it says that Abraham's offspring would be a blessing to all the nations on earth. And Abraham's offspring ultimately was Jesus himself. This is an important note. God, from the beginning of his covenant promises, sought to bring the nations that were once divided back together so that they might be blessed in Jesus. Now, this is a little bit of a side note, but this is incredibly unique compared to all other world religions. Right? Christianity has never been rooted or attached to any one culture. And what is a more important expression of culture than language? I mean, Judaism and Islam and other Eastern religions are all deeply, deeply rooted in particular cultures and even languages. I mean, just to give one example, even within Islam, the true word of God is in Arabic, which means if you want to know God's true words, you need to know Arabic. But for Christians, that's never been the case. If you have the word of God in uh, English, that is God's word. If you have it in Italian, that is God's word. If you have it in Swahili, that is God's word. Because Christianity is not rooted in any one particular culture, but 
weaves itself into particular cultures so that now there's an expression of faith for the Chinese and for the Ethiopian and for the Chilean, for the American. It's important to note this. This has always been God's intention. And it's also important to note that here in Acts 2, this speaking in tongues is actually referencing actual languages that were intelligible and understood when people heard them. I mean, look at verse 6. It says, When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Verse 11 goes on to say that we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Right? They heard the wonders of God being declared in their own language by those who did not actually speak the language. It was a miracle. I mean, it would be like right now, me speaking... And for you to hear Cantonese or Hindi or Swahili or Russian coming out of my mouth, even though I know none of those languages. And now I, I note that they're speaking uh, in tongues uh, in languages that are understood because I just want to reference and note the fact that there are other parts of the, the New Testament where speaking in tongues is noted. Places like 1 Corinthians 12, where it's a, there's more of a complex interpretive dance that needs to happen with what's going on in those passages. But here, speaking in tongues is 100% known languages being proclaimed. And it was God's way of showing what he desired to accomplish all the way back with Abraham. I mean, what does this mean? The people of the passage were asking the right question. What does this mean? It means that the promises of God to bless the nations, the ones he made to Abraham, they've been fulfilled. It means that the curse at Babel has now been reversed. It means that the people of God are not just the people of Israel, but those from all nations who call on the name of Jesus. It means that God is breaking down the dividing wall of hostility that we read about in Ephesians 2. This was his purpose. Praise be to God. So, because that's the case, it's important for us to not only consider, all right, so that's what it is, but I do want to take a moment and briefly describe what it's not. Okay. Uh, I'm going to be brief because I, I don't want to. I don't want this to be like the defining marker of of what we're taking away today. Uh, but I want to make sure that we're keeping. We'll keep the main thing. The main thing. So let me do this briefly. I don't believe that the events of Acts two are normative and ongoing, meaning. I don't believe that we should expect that God will come to us with wind and with fire and necessarily enable us to speak in other languages. Do I think he could do that? Absolutely. In fact, I know that at some points, in some places, in some circumstances, he's continued to show his power in those kinds of ways. I believe that he has. I've heard stories, and I have no reason to not believe these stories, that God has literally enabled people to speak languages that they do not know. And so I believe that he continues to work in that way. God works in the ways that he desires, and I no doubt believe that he has done so since Acts 2. But I also do not believe that we ought to expect such things normatively and for all of us. The disciples did not expect such things, nor did the disciples conjure up such things. All they did was they awaited the expected coming Holy Spirit. 
They waited to see how God was going to work and move. And the controversy of Acts 2 and other passages that reference these supernatural events uh, center around the extent to which differing, different Christians believe that these ought to be normative experiences that the Christian experiences, particularly as they relate to the supernatural. Right, so this, what, I'm, what we're doing now today, is not a teaching on spiritual gifts or on speaking in tongues or interpretation or prophecy or words of knowledge or anything like that. But there are brothers and sisters in Christ who I love and I respect, many of whom would be called Pentecostal, who believe these things are ongoing. Pentecostalism is a branch of Christianity that teaches that all supernatural things uh, that we see in Acts and that we've seen Christians uh, experience throughout the New Testament are things that we ought to expect and pursue even now. Specifically, that Christians should all speak in tongues. Uh, and many, uh, many of you know this. Um, if you don't, you're going to know now. But I spent 30 plus years uh, of my life in a Pentecostal denomination. I was ordained as a Pentecostal pastor for many years. And in the end, I came to a different uh, belief of, uh, from my study of Scripture about what these gifts are. And again, I hope in the course of this series we can unpack it a bit more. Uh, I just come to a different conclusion than my uh, brothers and sisters that hold Pentecostal doctrine. But I'm, I'm, shape, I'm saying all of that to frame it in this way. That though I'm not a Pentecostal with a capital P, meaning I don't hold to the Pentecostal doctrines, uh, I am Pentecostal with a lowercase p because I believe what the capital P Pentecostals believe, that we must expect that God is going to work in us and through us in supernatural ways. In fact, uh, I believe that all Christians are Pentecostal because the same Spirit who accomplished the work in Acts is the same Spirit that lives in all of us right now. And so in this sense, uh, my wife and I, you probably, many of you maybe know this, often refer to ourselves as Presbycostals because as a Presbyterian, I believe that the events of Acts 2 are this one-time redemptive historical event that we should not see as being normative. But I'm a lowercase p Pentecostal in that I believe we ought to expect encounters and experiences with the presence of God that radically transform us and move us in supernatural ways with supernatural power. I know uh, that there's probably a, a variety of people from a variety of different spectrums and perspectives and experiences on this issue. But I draw this out because, in particular, something that uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, said in his book, Joy Unspeakable, which, by the way, if I were to name, like, my top three books that mean the most to me, especially as they relate to the New Testament, this book is on that list. I've read it numerous times. Um, I would highly recommend you read it. Joy Unspeakable, Martin Lloyd-Jones. But he says this. He says that certain people, by nature, are afraid of the supernatural, of the unusual, of disorder. You can be so afraid of disorder, so concerned about discipline and decorum and control, that you become guilty of what the scriptures call quenching, quenching the spirit. And I note this because right now we're currently in a Presbyterian church. And... Presbyterians, as a tradition, are known for order and discipline and decorum and control, which are good and right, true virtues. But they can result in quenching the spirits because we ought to expect more. We ought to expect that when we come in contact 
with the Spirit of God, the power of God, this wind, this fire, that at times will produce something more than what we could possibly control. And so what then should we expect? Let's shift gears to this final point. Uh, Look at verse 14. It says this. It says, Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Peter then proceeds to preach uh, a sermon that brings this amazing conviction to thousands of people. 3,000 people come to faith on this day. Now, it's important to consider Peter and the 11 disciples and why this, this moment matters in verse 14. Peter, back in Luke 22 and in Matthew 26, we see it. We see how deeply cowardice Peter was. What we see back then is he denied even knowing Jesus for fear that he might be harmed or killed. With the rest of the disciples, we see in in John 20, after Jesus' crucifixion, they hid and they locked themselves behind a door out of fear. But now, here in Acts 2, Peter and these other disciples are standing before thousands of people some of whom were the same people that they once feared, some of whom would make their lives miserable, which we're going to see in the rest of our Acts series, some of whom would actually one day eventually kill them. But even though that was the case, they stood before that crowd and they proclaimed a powerful and clear message about Jesus. What happened? What was the change from who they were to now who they are now in Acts 2? Well, they encountered the power of God by being filled with the Spirit. And that filling created this overwhelming sense of joy and this exuberance for Jesus. They were so exuberant that people thought they were drunk at 9 a.m. in the morning. But in that exuberance, they were empowered to be a witness as Jesus promised that they would be. Christian. Do you want to know what Acts 2 tells us that we should expect? It tells us that we should expect to encounter the power of God through the filling of the Spirit, which leads to an abundance of joy and empowers us now to be witnesses for Him. And I want to walk a fine line with what I'm about to say. But I think this is important. I believe based on what I study and see in Scripture, that you can be a Christian, you can be born again, you can be born of the Spirit, united to Jesus, and still not have had an Acts 2 experience with the power of God. And one of the reasons why I believe that to be the case is the disciples themselves. The disciples, like their forefathers, I believe were regenerate believers, right? They had faith uh, in, in confess Jesus to be the Christ, And as a result, they trusted in him and him alone for salvation. And yet, they still had not experienced the filling of the Spirit that led them to overflow and boldness until the life, the death, and resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus. They did not fully experience these things until the Spirit came. They had an experience with this filling of the Spirit. Why? Well, what's interesting is that until the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, none of that was even possible for them to experience the Spirit in this way. 
Because again, consider and remember what it meant that the Spirit came. I mean, why is it that a burning bush was not consumed by fire? Why is it that we are not consumed by the fire that has come to us? Well, if you know the biblical theology of fire, it almost always references judgment. When fire falls from heaven, it's judgment falling. But now when fire falls, again, we're not consumed by it. Why? Well, it's because Jesus Christ on the cross took the judgment of that fire upon himself. So that now when we are unified to Jesus, when we are saved by him, we are now safe and secure from the judgment of that fire. So that now that fire propels us and empowers us instead of crushing us. And back to what I said earlier, I think that many of us have experienced the saving work of Jesus, but maybe have not yet experienced this fullness that comes, this filling of the Spirit that ends up resulting in overwhelming joy and this fervor for holiness and this boldness to proclaim the mighty works of God. And I am convinced of this, one, because I believe that's what the New Testament teaches, but also in experience. I know this, I've known this for myself. I've seen this certainly in others, where I do not doubt salvation in myself or in others. But I don't see the joy or the holiness or the boldness that comes with the filling of the Spirit. But my friends, because of what Jesus has done, we can experience that fullness. And so I ask you, do you want to experience more of God in this way? Are you tired of this lack of joy that you have in Christ? Are you tired of ongoing besetting sins? Are you tired of an apathy toward others in your witness to Christ? You know, think about this in relation to our church. Do we as a church lament that more people are not coming to faith or that we don't have more baptisms? I know that I do. And I don't say that in any kind of guilt way. I just say, do we have a desire for us as a church to see God fill us with his spirit in a way that makes the glory and the beauty of Christ known in our lives and to the lives of others? And I think it's appropriate and necessary for us to pray that God would fill us with his spirits afresh and pray that we have new encounters with his power, that we might experience that joy and that desire for holiness, this boldness to proclaim the works of God. And I want us to remember that it's because of the confidence that we have in what Jesus has done for us that we're able to experience this power. And so like the disciples, let's trust in what Jesus has done. Expect that the Spirit's going to meet us and fill us afresh. That we might see God in new ways. And we might be his witnesses wherever he may lead us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. For the work of Jesus that takes the judgment from us. So that now when your fire comes, we don't, uh, we don't worry about it crushing us. But now we come with expectation, believing that the fire within us is propelling us, empowering us to be your witnesses. And God, I also know that for many of us, Though we maybe we don't doubt our salvation and what you have done, God, we, we do long for more. We yearn for more of your spirit at work in us. And so, God, would you fill us with your spirit? 
And God, may that result in exuberant joy, a fervor for holiness, and a boldness to be your witnesses. And would that not only change us, but may we have the privilege and the pleasure of seeing how that transforms our families, our friendships, our relationships, our church, our community. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.